0: It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, more and more countries are banning single-use plastics. But what alternatives are available? One team of scientists has developed an antimicrobial spray that could replace plastic food packaging. Plus, how Colonial Williamsburg is working to incorporate more of its queer past. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. As more countries move to ban single-use plastics, discussion turns to what we should be using instead. Here in New York City, we banned plastic bags right around the start of the pandemic. Two years later, I have finally just about run out of the stash of plastic bags I had collected to reuse for other purposes, and have now been considering what I will use instead. Over in Wales, they're discussing including wet wipes in their plastic bag ban. And that's one that I know will hit a lot of people, especially parents, pretty hard. Know, as you might, how bad they are for the environment, with the vast majority of wet wipes containing plastic, if you've got a sticky, messy kid with you when you're away from home, a wet wipe that you can use and then throw away is the most efficient and sanitary option a lot of the times. you know, Having to carry around a bunch of washable cloths that you then keep on your person after they've been soiled doesn't exactly appeal to most people even though plenty of folks have already made that transition, and, you know, that's exactly what we did back before plastic took over our lives— there are going to be more and more items many of us grew up with that will have to get used to going without, and finding your preferred alternative will take some time. Fortunately, the field of single-use plastic alternatives is a popular one, with new products always hitting the market and many scientists around the world experimenting with innovative methods. A curious new one would seek to replace plastic packaging for foods with an antimicrobial spray. The goal was to create a replacement for petroleum-based plastic food packaging that would be biodegradable, non-toxic, could extend shelf life, enhance food safety, and reduce food waste. And the joint team from Rutgers and Harvard think they may have done it. Their findings, published yesterday in the journal Nature Food, explain how they've developed a scalable technology that turns biopolymers into smart fibers that can directly wrap the food. Those biopolymers can be derived from waste creating a circular economy. Quoting Science Daily, Like the webs cast by Spider-Man, the stringy material can be spun from a heating device that resembles a hairdryer and shrink-wrapped over foods of various shapes and sizes, such as an avocado or a sirloin steak. The resulting material that encases food products is sturdy enough to protect bruising and contains antimicrobial agents to fight spoilage and pathogenic microorganisms such as E. coli and listeria. The research paper includes a description of the technology called focused rotary jet spinning, a process by which the biopolymer is produced and quantitative assessments showing the coating extended the shelf life of avocados by 50%. The coating can be rinsed off with water and degrades in soil within three days, according to the study. The paper also describes how the new fibers encapsulating the food are laced with naturally occurring antimicrobial ingredients, thyme oil, citric acid, and nissen. The research team can program such smart materials to act as sensors, activating and destroying bacterial strains to ensure food will arrive untainted. This will address growing concern over foodborne illnesses, as well as lower the incidence of food spoilage, said Philip Demokritau, director of the Nanoscience and Advanced Materials Research Center, I'm very curious how this would work in practice. The paper only had one visual diagram, I wish there was some sort of video so I could really get a visual of both the application process and what food looks like if it looks different at all once the fibers are applied. And in general, I am intrigued by this sort of push and pull of solutions that either return us to how we did things before the, as Democritus calls it, age of plastic, or which accelerate us further into the future. According to folks like Democritau and the research team here, newer challenges in the climate crisis and with food safety mean we need newer solutions to keep us and the planet safe, as opposed to just a return to pre-plastic solutions, which may not have been as good at preventing foodborne illnesses, for example. Democritus said in a Rutgers statement, quote, I'm not against plastics. I'm against petroleum-based plastics that we keep throwing out there because only a tiny portion of them can be recycled. Over the past 50 to 60 years, during the age of plastic, we've placed 6 billion metric tons of plastic waste into our environment. They're out there degrading slowly, and these tiny fragments are making it into the water we drink, the food we eat, and the air we breathe. End quote. And like I said, more and more places are banning single-use plastics. The latest making headlines this week is Canada, who on Monday published final regulations that will ban the manufacture and import of harmful single-use plastics in December. And in addition to outright bans, others have more creative suggestions for curbing individuals' use of plastic. Natalie Fee, the founder of City to Sea, which campaigns against marine pollution, suggested to the BBC back in 2018, quote, we can look at changing the labeling like we have with cigarettes. If we had images of marine animals dying of plastic pollution on the front of baby wipes, that would certainly make people stop and think twice about flushing them down the toilet end quote. Wow, pretty metal. Possibly effective. Reminds me of Liquid Death's Cutie Palluti's line of stuffed animals. Liquid Death is the water brand I've mentioned countless times on this show because in addition to selling great still and sparkling mountain water in cans, not plastic bottles, they are also always dropping funny or slightly edgy new products like skateboards painted with drops of Tony Hawk's blood or vinyl records with song lyrics consisting of all their bad reviews. Back in 2020, they released a new line of marine stuffed animals, covered in blood with their guts spilling out, being choked by plastic bags or gouged by plastic straws. They are described as, quote, adorable ocean friends that have been mutilated by single-use plastic, end quote. The Horrifying Plushies are still for sale online for a whopping 75 bucks, but half of the profits go towards curbing plastic pollution. Or you can just watch the eerie commercial featuring real kids playing with and singing about these nightmarish toys, link in the show notes. But hey, if we don't do anything, maybe that's what all scene life will look like when those kids grow up anyways. Colonial Williamsburg, the world's largest living history museum, is not a place you probably associate with particularly progressive viewpoints or representations, but a new committee formed as part of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation is seeking to make it just that, digging through the archives to tell the stories of people in the past who transgressed the normative bounds of gender and sexuality." Partially in response to questions they're occasionally asked by visitors, one aim of the committee will be creating a source book for staff members about gender and sexual diversity in the 18th century. They'll also be investigating particular individuals who could be added to the roster of living history characters on site. But finding evidence for queerness in the past is always tricky. Fearing repercussions in their own time, same-gender feelings were rarely written down. And either out of a desire to protect reputations or more insidiously erase transgressors from history, the stories of people we may today call queer or trans were rarely recorded. Criminal records, unfortunately, are one of the best places to find evidence of potential individuals, but these don't tell the full story. There are no feelings in court records, and many of the documents could be records of assault, not consensual relationships. Historians like Michael Bronski, author of A Queer History of the United States, says it's useful to look at power imbalances in accused individuals. If they were both, for example, merchants, then it's more likely they had a consensual relationship versus the two accused having been a man of property and a servant, Bronsky says. And it gets even more heavy when race comes into play. DeAndre Short, an actor at Colonial Williamsburg, has assisted in research into interracial relationships during the period depicted by the museum and additionally fields questions from visitors about the sexual abuse of both free and enslaved black people in the 18th century in Williamsburg and beyond. He tells Atlas Obscura, quote, It's a difficult topic to discuss for anyone in public history, but it is a part of our history that we need to have conversations about. End quote. With so much of documented history of the era having been written by more upper-class white people upholding the traditions of the time, it can be extra tough to read between the lines and glean the true experiences and feelings of those whose stories are told, if they were told at all. Quoting Atlas Obscura, There's fragmentary evidence to suggest queer relationships among enslaved people. In 1828, a witness described an enslaved woman, Minty, in order to support a white woman's claim for monetary compensation after Minty escaped from Maryland. The account noted that Minty had two surnames, Gurry, the name of her husband with whom she had separated, and Caden, the name of another formerly enslaved woman with whom she formed an intimacy, writes historian Layla J. Roop in A Desired Past, A Short History, of same-sex love in America. The scholar Omisaeki Natasha Tinsley argues that the history of enslaved people must be open to different kinds of evidence at the risk of total erasure. In her paper, Black Atlantic, Queer Atlantic, Queer Imaginings of the Middle Passage. A similar issue of erasure plagues any documentation of the Native American communities who visited Williamsburg. The Cherokee tribe, which often came to the city for negotiations, has historic examples of men who lived as women, according to Cherokee scholar Quo Lee Driscoll in Asegi Stories, Cherokee Queer and Two-Spirit Memory. End quote. And the committee hopes that more individual narratives will come to light as they continue researching— But to add new characters, they need a lot of evidence fleshing them out as every character at the Living History Museum is based on a real person from history. As such, the historical figures most likely to become new characters initially at Colonial Williamsburg are white folks you may have heard of before. Most notably, Baron Frederick Wilhelm von Steuben, the Prussian military officer commissioned by Benjamin Franklin to whip the Continental Army into shape in the 1770s. Von Steuben was a major general in the Revolutionary War and served as George Washington's chief of staff. He's also pretty much universally assumed to have been gay at least in our modern parlance. Having been expelled from Germany on charges of sodomy, despite having proved himself as a war hero, when von Steuben ultimately came to America, his proclivities were in open secret, and even written about in the press, where we of course have to keep in mind the potential of exaggeration and bias. But nonetheless, due to his status and position, he's one of the queer figures of the era that we have the most documentation on. So not only would there be plenty for the museum to pull from and Developing the character, but he'd also be able to authentically interact with other characters at the museum, like the Marquis de Lafayette. On the gender non-conforming side of things, there is also Thomas or Thomasine Hall, quoting again, Born Thomasine Hall in England in 1603, they were assigned and raised female and worked as a servant, Rup writes. They later settled in Colonial Virginia and began living alternately as a man, Thomas Hill, and as a woman. After a suspected dalliance with a female servant, Hall was subject to multiple physical examinations to prove their sex until a Virginia court ruled Hall was both a man and a woman and ordered them to wear men's clothing with a woman's cap and apron. Group writes. It was clear that they meant to ostracize this person, says Aubrey Mugares from the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, adding that Hall, who might now be considered intersex, later disappears from the historical record. And while this person has inspired similar representations, like the character of Simeon Peck on PBS's Jamestown series, they were unfortunately born too early to be in the running for colonial Williamsburg contention. The museum only depicts the late 18th century. Hopefully, the committee will be able to uncover other examples of folks who bucked against traditional colonial norms of gender and sexuality at the time so that their stories can be added to the living museum. Because we know that these people were there, and their voices should be included as a full, accurate depiction of any point in history, especially when they've been excluded long enough that many people can be led to believe queerness and transness are recent phenomena. The committee says it will be a few years yet before any new content, whether it be characters or panel series on queer life in Colonial Williamsburg debuts, which is a bit of a bummer because I feel like this moment at the end of Pride Month and with Independence Day right around the corner would be the perfect time to talk about queer people at our nation's founding. So they'll just have to keep that in mind when new programming finally does debut. Well, fresh on the heels of the feature-length Marcel the Shell movie hitting select theaters, another viral YouTube gem from a decade ago is getting a new lease on life through traditional media. The Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared TV show is officially hitting British airwaves in September and the first teaser trailer for it dropped this week. Now, if you missed it back in the day, Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared was a puppet-based surrealist comedy horror series of six videos on YouTube that first dropped in 2010 and has since accumulated over 241 million views. Developed by Becky Sloan and Joseph Pelling while they were at university, the puppetry animation mix stars three main characters, Red Guy, Yellow Guy, and Duck, along with a slew of other anthropomorphic guests, and its plot is a bit tough to describe, so I'd just recommend giving it a watch if you haven't before. A TV show to air on the United Kingdom's Channel 4 was announced back in 2018, but not much else had been heard since then. Until finally, this week we got our first teaser trailer and word that the show will be officially premiering in the UK in September. No word yet on an international release, but as an internationally beloved series, I would hope there are plans for some kind of rollout, otherwise just get your VPNs ready. And like Marcel De Shell with shoes on, the new TV show is keeping the original creators and much of the original cast to retain as much of its true spirit as possible. So this should be pretty good and weird and just a little horrifying. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.